the Siècle. Episode 12. Louis Louis. Yesterday was the six-month anniversary of the Siècle's first episodes. I wasn't sure how it would be received, this in-depth look at a niche and little-known area of history. Suffice it to say, you, the listeners, have blown away my expectations. There's nearly a thousand of you hitting up every episode, and even more who've checked out an episode or two. Both numbers are rising steadily. And you aren't just listening. You're helping to spread the word. You're reviewing the show on iTunes. And most impressively of all, 25 of you so far have generously backed the show on Patreon, a massive gesture of support for this project that means so, so much to me. The support is particularly welcome because this week involves more milestones than one. Today, a few hours after I release this episode, I'm buying a house. Homeownership and podcasting are both novel and intense experiences for me, and knowing that so many of you care about the show helps keep me going. Thank you so much. Because of those 25 Patreon supporters hitting one of my milestones, I'm currently working on a bonus episode for everyone about some of the sources I've used to create the show. In the meantime, though, everyone's going to get a taste of that today. That's because this episode is an interview with one of my major sources, historian Philip Mansell. Mansell has written several books about this period in French history, including a full-length biography of King Louis XVIII. Louis is arguably the most important person in our narrative so far, so I think it's long overdue to take a deep dive into his life and personality. In the conversation that follows, Mansell and I will talk about everything from Louis's youth, to his greatest accomplishments, to his love life. If you'd like, you can follow along in the online version of this episode at thesiecle.com slash episode 12. That's T-H-E-S-I-E-C-L-E dot com, with 12 as a number. In addition to a full transcript, I've also added images and notes with more detail about some of the people and events that Mansell references. I've also included links there for how you can buy Mansell's books, including a new biography he just published on the life of the famous Sun King, Louis XIV. Just as a note, this episode has some audio quality issues that I normally try to keep out of the podcast but the handful of background noises and audio artifacts hopefully won't be too distracting. Without further ado, here's the interview. Dr. Mansell, welcome to the show. Hello. I, I'm sitting in a room lined with prints of Paris in 1814 and 15. One wall shows the relationship between English, French, Prussians, and Russians. Wonderful caricatures. Very funny quite relaxed about nationality, and the other shows the struggle for power between Louis XVIII and Napoleon in 1815. So you've been uh, studying this period in French history for a long time. That's right. I, my first book was A Life of Louis XVIII, the first life of him in English for about 100 years. I found it very interesting because not many people had written about him, and it was soon translated into French, and it's still in print there. Yeah, that was uh, in the, the late 70s, early 80s? When you... 1981. Uh, so you mentioned, like, uh, Louis XVIII has not gotten a lot of attention. Certainly, he's, he's preceded by one of the most famous figures in all of history. Tell me about what interested you about Louis XVIII as a character. 
I think the fact that he hadn't been written about much, the fact that he does, in fact, initiate a new era of constitutional monarchy, which dominates Europe until 1918, and is, in fact, much more important than the military monarchy of Napoleon, and how a fat old invalid of 60 reinvents himself as a constitutional monarch in 1814 in Paris. How did he do it? And how did he manage to get a degree of acceptance so that when he died in 1824, he's the last French monarch to die on the throne, and the garden around the palace, the palace itself, and then the funeral route from Paris to Saint-Denis is lined with respectful subjects, much more respectful than they had been at the funerals of Louis XV or indeed Louis XIV. I've just finished the life of Louis XIV. And his funeral procession was lined with people drinking, singing, and even dancing. We'll cover all of that in uh, the course of the this episode. But uh, first, uh, you could just sort of take a few minutes and sketch the broad outlines of uh, Louis XVIII's life for uh, listeners to get the basics before we start getting into the details of his personality and reign. Well, he's born in 1755 in Versailles. He's a middle son of his parents, the Dauphin and the Dauphine, the son and daughter-in-law of Louis XV, an extremely privileged upbringing, every luxury, a very good education, very thorough, uh, Latin, French, Italian, and English. He spoke very good English and rather furious that his less intelligent elder brother, Louis XVI, is king. And he has nothing much to do except to make a few bad property investments in Paris. So he's sitting there observing Then the French monarchy and France are hit by the revolution. His world collapses in 1789. He begins to be threatened with physical violence as a mob comes and drags his family from Versailles back to Paris. But he makes a successful escape in 1791. Unlike Louis XVI, who's arrested at the frontier, he gets away because he puts his wife in one carriage and himself in another. And for the next... 23 years, he's moving around Europe, Germany, Italy, Poland, Russia, Sweden, finally England, looking for a safe haven, looking for a foreign government to support him financially and politically, running this government in exile, the emigre government, which has a few successes, beginning in 1814, when the people of Bordeaux opened the gates of Bordeaux to his nephew, the Duc d'Angoulême. 12th of March, 1814. And thereafter, he comes back in triumph to Paris on the 3rd of May, 1814. Often his carriage is unhorsed and pulled by young men. Then he has a half success establishing a constitutional government, but he's thrown out again in the 100 days when Napoleon sweeps back to power, March, 1815, on a tide of popular approval. But it's only half of France, some regions and the army. And Napoleon is inevitably defeated by all Europe at the Battle of Waterloo, 18th of June, and Louis XVIII goes back to Paris. In fact, he was a completely European figure who knew both out of choice and necessity how to play the card of Europe and peace, which then appealed to about half of France. Thank you for uh, for that uh, quick summary. We'll sort of work backwards from from there. Uh, Obviously, you know, Louis XVIII was famous for uh, his sort of abortive for first restoration to the throne. How much 
credit or blame uh, do you think his choices as ruler deserve for the, the failure of the restoration to take root uh, in that, that first, in 1814-1815? Well, some of his choices were very bad, trying to revive the military household of mounted noble bodyguards. Some of his ministerial choices were bad. But he inherited an extremely divided society and a humiliated army which resented its defeat in 1814. And the fact that Russia insisted on putting Napoleon at Elba, far too close to France, was almost a recipe for trouble. So I don't think it was all Louis XVIII's fault. And this feeling of national humiliation was almost unmanageable. For example, there are orders of the day to the National Guard of Paris saying, oh, you haven't really been defeated. It's only the fault of Napoleon, not the fault of France. This denial of reality so often associated with nationalism. France couldn't bear not being the top nation in Europe. And Louis XVIII was associated with that defeat. I think if a lot of people know anything about Louis XVIII, uh, it's the, that famous phrase that uh, the Bourbons had learned nothing and forgotten nothing. But you explain in your book that that's not necessarily a fair description of at least 1814, 1815. Yes, I think it is unfair because he did have an, uh, a complete pardon for all crimes during the revolution. And when he commemorated his constitution, the charter of the 4th of June, 1814, he put a an inscription in the room where it was issued saying here began a new era and his motto was union and oblivion, union and forgetting the past, trying to look forward to the future. And he did in fact employ a lot of ex-revolutionaries, including Fouché, who had voted for his brother's death in 1793. And he did endorse the land settlement of the revolution the transfer of a lot of land from the church and the nobility to other groups. It was an extremely difficult heritage with this traumatic event, the revolution, the reign of terror, the emigration, 24 years of almost nonstop war. Any country would have been traumatized by that. And he saw himself as a doctor, a doctor healing the wounds of France. And he did his best by, by not pursuing uh, if you think how now so many criminals from the Nazi period are still being pursued or, or property is still being pursued, well, he stopped all that in France. It took Louis some time to uh, get to that point, though, of uh, endorsing uh, a sort of forgive and forget and uh, coming to terms with some of this new era, didn't it? Uh, so early on in his emigration, he wasn't necessarily so accepting of some of these changes. Yes, that's true. In 1795, he said he wanted a return to the old regime, which was completely ridiculous because there was no fixed old regime. It had been constantly changing. It was different in 1787 to what it was in 1774 or 1789, for example. I think he was traumatized by the revolution and he felt reforms had led to revolution. Therefore, he should stop reforming. But by about 1800 or 1804, he had abandoned what he called ancient maxims, and was trying to have a more modern settlement. Which is not an evolution that all the emigres made. Uh, certainly Louis would, would clash with a number of the uh, more hardline emigres after returning to the throne. Including his younger brother, the Comte d'Artois, who later lost the throne as Charles X 
But a lot of emigres were quite modern, successful politicians like Chateaubriand, the great writer who became a minister, one of the greatest writers of 19th century France, or the Duc de Richelieu who helped negotiate the retreat of the Allied armies from occupying France after 1815. He was a very effective parliamentary prime minister, and he spent the entire, most of the revolution governing the Crimea for the Tsar of Russia. It didn't actually we're talking about. The Duc de Richelieu, yes. yes. It didn't actually make him less effective in parliamentary debates in Paris. Curiously, people were quite pragmatic. They could forgive emigration or revolution if they were effective operators in the present rather than the past. Let's focus in on Louis and his character for a moment. Obviously, he was a complicated person uh, who whose character has been commented on by a number of the most famous writers of the day. Why don't you summarize up uh, for our listeners uh, what kind of person Louis XVIII was and how these character traits translated to his role as uh, king? Well, he was very literary. He, he loved reading books. He was very well informed. He was a European. He was intelligent. He, was, he could adapt to circumstances. So this was often called weakness. He could contradict what he had said, written a week before, for example, coming back from after the Battle of Waterloo. I think he genuinely was a real moderate who didn't want to execute or punish people more than the minimum, unlike Napoleon or other French 19th century governments, for example, the Third Republic, when it's killing the communards in 1871, a massive repression in the Second Republic in 1848. Thousands die. Well, that wasn't Louis XVIII's character, although there was a repression after the Battle of Waterloo, partly imposed by the Parliament, which had an ultra-royalist majority. He was pragmatic. He was moderate. He wanted peace. He was very, very ill. He had gout, and he was hugely fat. He couldn't really move easily. So maybe... His size also influenced his character and his policies, making him more moderate and more uh, opposed to any form or most forms of violence, and certainly opposed to war. He loved peace. A number of authors have given a critique along these lines of Louis, uh, which is that his virtues were passive. That is to say, he knew when not to do something, but wasn't necessarily very good at knowing the right thing to do. How would you respond to that critique? I think it's partly true. I think in, in an age of extreme crisis, of these dramas like the return of Napoleon or the Napoleonic Wars, which were a huge world war with hundreds of thousands dying, he returned to Paris on the 3rd of May through mountains of corpses of dead soldiers uh, from the recent battle for Paris. And the River Seine was full of so many bodies that people were worried the water was no longer drinkable. So in this extreme circumstance, passivity was one form of reaction. But he did take the initiative in some aspects. For example, he sacked governments when they no longer had a majority in the Chamber of Deputies three times in 1815, 1820, and 1821. And he chose new governments that reflected the majority. And he always stuck to the Constitution of 1814, which he had issued and helped to write in May 1814. And in fact, he took quite a lot of initiatives during the emigration, issuing declarations, moving from 
Russia to England or from Poland to Sweden. Or not these initiatives weren't always successful. But he's he's never never inactive for long in emigration when his health was much better. Another aspect of his character that gets commented on a lot is his coldness. Yes. Well, I think he was. I don't think that's entirely true because he always had favorites like the Comte d'Avaray or the Comte de Cas or Madame de Cailla. His letters to his courtiers, which I've read hundreds of, are really quite warm and loving. For when you consider the raised position of monarchs at the time, he has an awful lot of correspondence with whom he has quite a loving co- le- exchange of letters, much more so than Louis XVI, for example, or Louis XV, or in, almost Louis XIV, though Louis XIV also had a very emotional side. Is it fair to say that he, uh, Louis XVIII was uh, much more emotional in writing than he was in person? Maybe. Well, <laughs> I haven't actually met him, so I can't yeah, judge really. But I think he used the language of emotions, sort of clasping people to his breast, being nice to Napoleonic marshals when he first meets them in April 1814 and flattering them. Maybe his eyes gave him away. Maybe his eyes were colder than his words. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I'm always struck by Louis as my sense of him is always sort of a man sort of caught between ages. Someone who grew up in the Enlightenment, uh, who now finds himself uh, in in a post-revolutionary age, trying to adapt to that, but sort of caught in between those two worlds. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yes, but I don't think they're opposed worlds. The one goes into the other. Many other people were in the same predicament, like Talleyrand, a very successful foreign minister who'd grown up in the Enlightenment, or indeed the Duc de Richelieu, or Chateaubriand, who read Rousseau and then becomes an apostle of the revival of Catholicism. It's just a natural progression. There were some great writers in the emigration, like Rivarol or Chateaubriand or many others. I think the real uh, exception that was the first empire, which really was a world apart, a, a military world, a world based on war and conquest and, in fact, dictatorship, as many people said at the time uh, when Napoleon, when he met the corps législatif in January 1814, he said, I alone represent the nation. The throne is everything. The nation is, he almost said, the nation is nothing. And, And that was the world that couldn't quite adapt to the peaceful Europe of the 19th century. Novels and events are full of these retired soldiers both in France and in Italy and in other countries, who don't really know what to do in peacetime Europe. I just recently shared with the uh, podcast listeners the uh, excerpt from Chateaubriand's memoirs, in which he reflects on the end of the the empire, the the passage of Napoleon, and its replacement by the Restoration, and sort of laments, what are we to do? What are we to do without uh, this this world-historic figure before us? And... uh, argues that the, the restoration is 
well, perhaps less bold, uh, more human. Yes, it was much more human. The, the, the empire was defined by Madame de Noailles as the guillotine in permanence. Uh, the loss of life was simply staggering. In a way, the French never really quite recovered their demographic base from the loss of about 900,000 men in the wars of the Republic and the Empire, at least 900,000, let alone the people who died in Spain and Germany and Italy and Russia. Well, Chateaubriand at the time was very anti-Napoleon. In 1814, he wrote a famous pamphlet, De Bonaparte et de Bourbon, saying, calling Napoleon a false great man, not a true great man. It's later, in retrospect, with the cult of Napoleon and his ceremonial reburial in 1840, people become more sentimental and in my opinion, less objective. They glorify his conquests, forgetting how deeply resented they were at the time, this non-ending wars. Uh, you've spoken several times of uh, the charter, uh, the, the sort of constitutional monarchy that uh, Louis set up, which lasted perhaps longer than anyone expected in France and certainly had uh, imitations in, in other countries. How much should we associate the charter with Louis himself? Uh, how much how much of this did he genuinely believe in? How much was he accepting as something that he had to do? And uh, what was what was his view of the the limit the limitations and the powers contained in this sort of new system of government for France? He wrote to his cousin, the King of Naples, "A constitution is in the spirit of the age, and it's better to give one, to grant one, than to have one imposed on you." I think he just thought it was a necessity, a, a, a life belt for the Bourbon monarchy. And I think he found it work quite well by the 1820s. He once said to his ministers, everything is going well now, isn't it? For certainly the finances were much better than the old regime monarchy. The, the monarchy had a vast number of reserve powers, which the presidency of the Fifth French Republic now has kept. Article 16 repeats Article 14 of the Charter of Louis XVIII. Article 16 of the 1959 Constitution. The, the president has the power to take, to issue ordinances uh, when necessary, or some phrase like that. And he made a great parade that the charter was his child, his work, that he was proud of it. He associated with himself in speeches. And there is this month, May 1814, when with three or four other people, the Abbe de Montesquieu, Comte Bernieu, D'Ambray, a few others, he's composing the clauses of the Charter. So it really was, at least in part, his work, just as much as the Code Civil was partly, not entirely, the work of Napoleon. So with these three things, the Code of Napoleon, the Charter of Louis XVIII, and then the city of Paris itself, the most civilized and popular city of 19th century Europe, and fourthly, the French language, which was the language of the world, almost more than English is now in the 21st century. Those four things make France extremely influential in the 19th century, as indeed it was in the United States with the layout of Washington, D.C. and other factors. And by the way, it was an emigre who helped found West Point Military Academy in the 1790s. Once Louis had set up and, and come to terms with uh, this, this new charter, this new constitutional monarchy, how did his, his personality, his background, and, and all all that meld with the circumstances of the early restoration to what kind of what kind of monarch was he? Well, he let ministers take the initiative, except in a few things like creating a royal guard. He was quite hardworking. He works after dinner, as Louis XIV did. Louis XIV sometimes he'd work at midnight. Um, otherwise, he's 
quite easygoing, letting the ministers run the government and spending a lot of time giving audiences to people, holding receptions, a few royal words here and there, going for afternoon drives, very interested in the artistic collections, the huge museum created by Napoleon in the Louvre, half of which is sent back to the countries from which it, the contents were taken in 1815. But Louis XVIII keeps it going, gets more statues for it from the Aegean Islands, for example. Um, he mentions the Louvre before the Constitution in his first speech of his reign, 4th of June, 1814. Very interested in the cultural patronage of the monarchy. Did Louis evolve as a monarch from from 1815 after his initial restoration to the end of his reign in uh, 1824? Yes, he becomes more modern. He abandons the old military household of the kings. He lets ministers have more initiative. And he, he has one change in that he lets a ministry be homogeneous, representing only one opinion, right wing or liberal, for example, not mixing them into the same ministry as he had in 1814, which created instability. And as he gets iller in the 1820s, he takes fewer initiatives. How did this approach to the monarchy that Louis took of, of letting the, the ministers take the lead, how did this work out in practice? In practice, it meant that they met often, say, two or three times a week in the Council of Ministers. But it meant that they, the ministers had to pass, get their laws passed in the Chamber of Deputies. There were many stormy sessions, a lot of feelings of instability. It didn't work so well for the first five years. But once there's a strong minister like the Duc de Richelieu or the Comte de Villel, who becomes prime minister in 1821, then it worked quite well. And people become more accepting of the regime. So even the, the most extreme Napoleonic officers accepted Charles X as king in 1824. He enters Paris when Louis dies. His younger brother enters Paris on a wave of popularity in September 1824. Uh, let, let's talk about uh, Louis' brother, successor, uh, both their, their personal relationship as well as the ideological relationship between Louis and the strain of uh, ultra-royalism that Charles represented. In all their writings, the, they make a great parade of friendship and love between brothers. When they meet again in 1791, after two years, I, I wonder how much they really loved each other. But Louis is in this position of having no children of his own. Therefore, he's slightly in the power of his younger brother, who does have two sons, who the, the heirs, to the, the ultimate heirs to the throne. Louis was, at the beginning of the revolution, supported some change. He supported the doubling of the number of third estate deputies, for example. So he's he's a moderate. The Comte d'Artois, as his brother was called, was against almost all changes. And he emigrates early on the 17th of July, the moment the Bastille falls. So he's an extremist from the beginning, though not always as extreme as his enemies said. I remember being struck by, uh, I don't know if this is in your book or someone else's, but that uh, Charles is always much more personally warm with, for example, the uh, Orléans, uh, who Louis could be very cold with at times. Yes, uh, Louis had been very warm with Louis Philippe, the son of Philippe Egalité, from 1800 to 1807, 1804, Orléans 
proposes coming to see him in Warsaw, and it's, sometimes he's more trusted than Artois. Then they have a rift in 1807. Nobody quite knows why. And certainly Louis XVIII did not trust him. Charles X was kinder to him and made him a royal highness, which Louis XVIII had refused to do. Even though they had much, uh, Louis Philippe and uh, Artois had much bigger uh, political differences than uh, Louis yes. Philippe and Louis did, uh, but uh, the the person the, the differences in the the personal relationships it always struck me that uh, that they could, uh, Charles could be kinder uh, despite having much bigger political gaps. That's that's correct. Yes, Charles had very good manners. He could be very very charming, but he didn't have these great friendships, except perhaps for the Polignac family, that Louis XVIII did. Even Charles X had liberal aspects. He was against censorship, for example. Napoleon had always imposed the most rigorous censorship, almost as rigorous as a modern dictatorship. And in 1827, he dismisses the right-wing government and has a liberal government for 18 months, the government of Martignac, 1828 to 1829. And of course, all this time, between 1814 and 1830, France is growing economically. It's paying off the debts of the first empire. The economy is beginning to expand again after 24 years of war. Paris is spreading. Paris begins to recover the population it had had under Louis XVI. It had lost about 80,000 people during the revolution. And, and France is becoming stronger economically, even politically, in the concert of Europe, as people begin to accept that the Bourbon monarchy may be there to stay. What was Louis' relationship like with the ultra-royalists in general, the people who uh, ostensibly were championing his rights as king, uh, but maybe not necessarily in the same way that, that Louis was? Yes, he, he, he liked them during the emigration. He always opposed very exalted language or imagery, and he was appalled at their opposition to his dismissal of the ultra-royalist chamber in September 1816 and call for more, a more liberal and a more moderate government. He thought they might destroy his monarchy, as, as his advisor, the Duke of Wellington, the great British general, also wrote. So he, he, he dismissed Chateaubriand as a minister of state, for example, and other ultra-royalists also lost official positions. One interpretation that I've always had is that Louis may not have disagreed that much in terms of policy goals with the ultra-royalists, but he was temperamentally completely different from them. Yes, I think I think that's a very good point. He didn't want partisan politics. He wanted a politics of, of reunification and moderation, and their extremism and their speeches, speeches like, long live the king despite himself, vive le roi quand même. Um, appalled him. You mentioned earlier that uh, Louis had, was, had a number of favorites. Uh, you could talk about that aspect of his personality and in his, uh, his personal life. Well, the Comte d'Avaray, who helped organize his escape from revolutionary Paris in 1791, was his first favorite, much disliked by royalists, and he, he made often very foolish writings, which got Louis expelled from Poland in 1804, for example. Um, but in the terms of the emigration, he was a moderate who wanted an evolution towards 
more liberal political declarations, which in the end he got. But the royal family didn't like him. Nobody really liked him. He was a bachelor. He was always with the king, advising him uh, in his study, writing letters and declarations, much disliked by the ministers of the emigration. Then he had the Comte de Blacas, who had a rather cold manner, but his letters are highly intelligent. And he helped run the monarchy from 1807 to 1815. In the end, he's dismissed because everybody turns on him and blames him quite unfairly, I think, for the blunders of the first restoration. But that's how politics is. A minister is blamed and the monarch moves on. And he later becomes one of the great art patrons of the 19th century, excavating as ambassador in Naples and Rome, helping Champollion decipher, uh, financing his decipherment of the hieroglyphics of pharaonic Egypt, commissioning pictures from Ingres and so on. And he later advises Charles X in exile. Then there is the Comte de Caz, a non-noble from Bordeaux. Bordeaux was a great bastion of royalism, who pushes the king in a more liberal direction from 1816 to 1820. He'd begun as minister of police, and he, he liked having police forces spying, intercepting letters, and so on. Probably quite an effective minister in a very difficult situation. And finally... He has Madame Ducaila, a charming lady with whom he used to talk in private. Goodness knows what their relationship really was. But she was a friend of the ultra-royalists and she helped push him towards ultra-royalism. He just needed a friend who wasn't a member of his family with whom he could talk openly and exchange letters. He was a great letter writer, probably the King of France who's written most letters, as well as the King of the fattest King of France in history. But again, it shows that he was quite emotional, that he needed a favourite. He couldn't live in solely in the confines of royal life and the royal family. And he also had a few girlfriends, a few letters have been found recently, um, who made private secret visits to his study, both in England and in Paris, about whom we don't know very much, but who horrified his courtiers. What do you think is his most important legacy as uh, Francis King? It's, it's the constitutional monarchy. The, the place where he issued his first declaration is going to be restored as a museum of the restoration, the Chateau of Saint-Ouen at the gates of Paris. And he made that a sort of shrine to constitutional monarchy. And this constitution was imitated in Bavaria, in Württemberg, in, later in Prussia, in Piedmont, in many other European countries. So... It must have had its advantages if it was so widely imitated. And peace, I mean, just saying, I want peace after 24 years of war from 1792 to 1814. Um, so he's got a complete opposite of the warlike tradition of Napoleon. Nevertheless, it's Louis XVIII who first said to the pupils of the military school of Saint-Cyr, Every one of you has in his knapsack the possibility of having the baton of a marshal of France. That was Louis. That's, that's attributed to Napoleon often. Yes, in fact, it's Louis. If you look in dictionaries of quotations now. For readers who want to learn more, uh, just spend a couple minutes uh, talking about the various books you've written on this topic, as well as uh, your new book uh, on uh, Louis Fourteenth. I've written A Life of Louis Eighteenth, A History of the French Court, the Court of France, 1789 to 1830, uh, a book on Paris, 
between 1814 and 1848 and how Paris as a city is politically a vital force in, in a way more important almost than France itself in that it's Paris which makes revolutions and fashions and writers and operas and what is often talked of as French culture really often people mean Parisian culture. It has nothing to do with the Auvergne or Provence. And now a life of Louis XIV, the same problems 200 or 150 years earlier, France's role in Europe, the importance of Paris. It's Paris that makes the Fronde, which almost overthrows Louis XIV when he was a boy. Relations with England, relations with Europe, attitudes to war and peace. But in all periods, yes, French fashions, Paris fashions, are dominant under Charles under Charles II just as much as under George IV or Queen Victoria, and the French language and this feeling of France as the central country in European politics, culture, society, and indeed in the economy too. And what's the title of that upcoming book? Uh, that's King of the World: The Life of Louis XIV. And that's our interview. My thanks again to Dr. Mansell for coming on the show. You can find links to buy all these books at thesiecle.com slash episode 12. That's T-H-E-S-I-E-C-L-E dot com. If you liked what you just heard, you probably haven't heard the last of him. Our discussion also touched on another of Mansell's interests, the city of Paris, a conversation I plan to package into another episode down the line. In the meantime, we're not yet done with French royalty. In the next episode... I'll be taking a look at the illustrious, and not-so-illustrious, other members of the House of Bourbon, who've lurked in the background of our narrative so far, but who are about to move to center stage. So grab a glass, put away those ice cubes, and join me in two weeks for episode 13, Bourbon's Neat. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.